driver fly. Genesis number six is where we're going to start. And let's pray. Oh, Lord God, uh, thank you for your words to us and thank you for the gift of faith that we would believe you and believe what you have said. And Father, we ought to be grateful for this gift because so much of the world does not believe you and does not know you, and it's a great kindness you've shown to us. We pray that you would teach us your word, that we would think rightly about it, and we pray then your blessing upon our Sunday school time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, of course, what we're doing is just, for now, um, just working ourselves through the first 11 chapters of Genesis which are really laying the groundwork for the world as we know it. Um, The creation of the world, the creation of man, the purpose of creation, what we were intended to do, uh, the fall of man, and the way that God is uh, interacting with fallen man and what his plans and purposes are. And so we've seen that again, of course, the creation of the world, the creation of Adam and Eve, God's instruction to them and God's explanation of their relationship to him, the temptation of Satan, and and now what it looks like to have a sinful world. And so this morning we turn our attention to the flood, which occupies Genesis 6-9 through Genesis 9-17. At least that will be the way that I will deal with it so it's a lot of verses and we're not going to try and read them in their entirety we're all pretty familiar with the story of the flood and unlike I've just just personally you know find this kind of interesting with references having to prepare the Sunday school lessons um, the story of the flood falls in between a couple of very challenging passages to interpret we spent our time last week in Genesis 6, 1 through 8, with the story of the sons of God and the daughters of men and the complexities of that issue. And after the flood, we will turn our attention to Noah and his sons and his son Ham and exactly what happened uh, there when Noah got drunk. Another one of those, I don't want to say complicated, but complex stories because we We don't all agree on what we're being told and the implications of it. And in between that is the account of the flood, which pretty much really presents only one of two challenges, right? I mean, either we believe the account of the flood or we don't. But having, having believed the account of the flood, there's not really a lot of debate that goes on after that. Um, I suppose there are some people who believe the flood but believe that it wasn't a worldwide flood, but they're pretty much in the minority. People either believe it or they don't believe it. And it really doesn't pose a lot of those kinds of complicated questions. We, we, we rarely scratch our heads about 
anything that is being told us uh, when it comes to the flood, like we do, again, with Genesis 6, 1 through 8, in which we don't exactly, right? I mean, we know what the text says, and we believe the text, but we don't really know that we know that we understand what the text is telling us, and so we have a lot of conversation about that. So, um, <clears throat> if we were trying to deal with the flood account <clears throat> in, a, in, a, in rather a technical way, um, <clears throat> I would point out to you that the account of the flood, Genesis, basically Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, is told in a pretty common Hebrew um, narrative structure, which is known as a chiasm. Chiasm is a fancy word for a cross or an intersection. And it's not uncommon, particularly in the Old Testament, for Bible stories to be told that way, where the beginning and the ending information are not identical, but they're similar and we keep walking through those grades until you get to the middle. And the middle is, of course, kind of where the meat is. That's why we spend time talking about the chiastic structure. Because when we can identify that, we understand that that very intersection is the point of the story. And the point of the story is the destruction of the earth. The point of the story is not Noah and the animals and the ark. I mean, they're a part of it. But the point of the story is that God destroyed his creation. God made it, and he destroyed it. <clears throat> um, as, as Bill Cosby said to one of his children when he was still a hero to parents everywhere back in the 80s, to, one of the, to his son, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. And uh, so God brought the world into existence and he can take the world out of existence. So let's just turn our attention then to the text. And we're, we're just going to walk through this story again. There's not much here that we don't know. Um, there's very little that would be controversial. We're not going to touch on that. Um, and when we get to the end, I just am going to try and deal with it very simply. There are, I would argue, two major spiritual implications to the story, right? God is never trying to entertain us. Um, he's not providing with us fodder for Sunday school lessons. And, and I'm, not, <clears throat> I'm not trying to minimize any of that. Uh, we have had, it was on the wall in what is now the copy room, which was at one time the church nursery. We have a mural that people painted many, many years ago of Noah and the ark and the animals, and everybody loves that, but that's not really the point of the story. Okay? The, the point of the story, again, <clears throat> is that God destroyed his creation. Why did God destroy his creation? Um, <clears throat> What would, what would cause you to, to render to nothing something that you had made? Um, and that's where we are within the story. So in Genesis 6, verse, chapter 6, beginning in verse number 9, right? And again, I would just point out to you <clears throat> that the book of Genesis kind of divides itself into these sections with this ex- explanation. These are the generations, and so these are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Noah. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 22, God proclaims his determination to destroy the earth. And what he is going to do is destroy all of the earth with the exception of Noah and his family. Okay, And I would just point out to you that Genesis 6, 8 and Genesis 6, 9 are explaining to us a very important sequence 
but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man, righteous, perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. We, we don't want to get that reversed. The grace of God in verse number 8 created the Noah of verse number 9. <clears throat> it is not that the Noah of verse number 9 merited the grace of God in Genesis 6-8. So Noah is a righteous man and a godly man because of God's grace to him. And uh, there's, there's no explanation given for why Noah out of anybody else, just like there's no explanation ever given why Abraham versus anybody else. Um, <clears throat> there's never an explanation given why God chose Paul out of all the other Jews that lived, or Peter, I mean, God just doesn't explain himself when he does those kinds of things. He does them, by all accounts to us, completely arbitrarily. So out of a, out of a population, right, without going back in Genesis 6, 1 and 2, right, the story begins by explaining to us the population growth of the world. And out of the population growth of the world, the world is just unbelievably, incredibly evil. And God decides it's going to go. But Noah. But Noah. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> God proclaims his determination. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> Noah begat three sons. Verse number 10, Shem, Ham, Japheth. We will, of course, return to them. They become now significant figures. They become significant figures in the development of humanity. And far more than they are significant figures in the development of the redemption story. Is that, can I say that? I, I think I can say that safely. I mean, no disrespect to them right so we have Noah and and his wife and we have their three sons and we know that they have wives and we have the earth verse number 11 the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence and God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth so we have one righteous man, because God is gracious to him, and we have a world that is on the receiving end of God's condemnation. The world is corrupted, and the idea there is that it is ruined, right? Just like if a computer file was corrupted, and it no longer functions properly, uh, the earth is ruined, it is no longer functioning properly. And you want to make note in verse number 12 that God lays the blame for that at the feet of mankind. God looked upon the earth, behold, it was corrupt, it was ruined, for all flesh had ruined his way, God's way, upon the earth. So everybody is going contrary to God's way. This is part of the condemnation. <clears throat> And the earth, verse 11, is filled with violence, what I would, which I would certainly understand as physical violence, but I don't think we should just limit it to physical violence. 
It is the kind of violence of people mistreating and dealing cruelly with other people. It is the world that we have. I mean, look, folks, there are, there are two major indicators of godless people. One is that they are violent, and the other is that they are immoral. Sexual immorality and violence are the hallmarks of godless people. Or, <clears throat> welcome to the United States of America. In verses 14 through 22, provision is made for Noah's salvation. So Noah is identified as being God's object of redemption. And because of God's grace, Noah is different than the world around him. The world around him is ruined and violent, but that does not describe Noah. He is righteous and just. And so God begins to instruct him about his salvation, which is through the preparation of the ark. And this ark will preserve him through the flood. And the animals that are put into the ark, folks, serve to preserve more than they serve to preserve the continuity of the animal kingdom. They serve to preserve the continuity of mankind. Um, the animals, in a very real and substantive way, exist for humanity. Um, one of the reasons God made the animal kingdom was so that we would have food to eat. And so, um, again, I, you know, I'm not trying to get into a big fight about this, and I don't know anything about anybody, so I'm not, I have no axe to grind. But our... <clears throat> radical vegetarian, vegan, pita world um, is a reflection of the fact that we really do not understand God's creation and do not submit ourselves to what God said. God's feelings are never hurt when somebody butchers a cow and eats it, nor a pig, nor for that matter a guinea pig. Here it is. Here's the animal kingdom. I gave it to you for food. And so. Now, <clears throat> what we don't know, and, and they're just, they're, you know, we don't, we don't really get into this because how do you have Sunday school lessons about the stuff that you don't know? But we don't know what Noah understood about God's plans for him going forward. Right? What Noah knows is that his task is to prepare an ark. And we know from the book of Hebrews that it was the preparation of the ark that functioned as the condemnation of the world. Um, so that's what's going on in Genesis 6, 14 through 22. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, then the, Noah is saved from the flood. So Noah prepares the ark. And uh, I, you know, I got a, a good email question from one of the guys this week about, you know, that Noah and the ark. And my wife and I had a conversation about Noah and the ark and the condemnation of the world. And, you know, did it take Noah all 120 years to prepare the ark? Did Noah spend some time building the ark and some time preaching um, 
the condemnation of the world. We know that the Bible calls him a preacher of righteousness. Um, is that how he did it? I mean, and I'm not trying to be funny. You know, I'm just, is, is, is should we think of Noah as a carpenter who has a sideline as an evangelist or an evangelist with a sideline as a construction worker? Uh, how, should we, how should we think about that? Was it possible for Noah to be on site to build the ark um, while traveling around whatever the population of the world was at that time? Um, and uh, well, we, these, these are things that we just don't clearly don't know. Um, neither do we know if Noah and his three sons was really the extent of his whole family. Did he have grandchildren? We don't know. Did he, did he have brothers and sisters who were alive? We don't know. Um, we, just, we just have the account that is given to us for the purposes that God has given us those things. So in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Noah is spared from the flood. He has gathered the animals. There are clean animals and unclean animals, which we don't really encounter fully until we get into the law, and we're a long way from the law. But there's obviously been some religious instruction, and those things have continuity. Just, just like in our day, folks, there are things that, that, that they're not labeled clean and unclean, but we think in terms of cleanliness and uncleanliness, acceptable and unacceptable to God, and we put those kind of labels on there. And in chapter 7, then, beginning in verse number 6, the inhabitants of the world are destroyed by the flood. So verse number 5, Noah did according to all that God commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. So into the ark they go. So here's another question. Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, eight people, are spared from the destruction of the flood. Are they all saved people? And I think that we can add, that I can ask the question on the basis of the way the Bible talks about Ham in Genesis chapter 9. That their physical deliverance is an illustration of spiritual deliverance. But I don't know that we have absolute certainty that the sons and the wives are all believers. I think, again, I think there's a legitimate question about Ham, but that would just be the way that I would look at the text, and so I do not know. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Of course, we know that. For Verse number 4 of chapter 7, for yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living substance that I have made I will, destroy, will I destroy from off the face of the earth. That is repeated in Genesis 7.4, Genesis 7.12, Genesis 17. That it's going that it rains for forty days and forty nights, and in Genesis seven twenty one we have the declaration that everything that was on earth died. 
All flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land, died. So the flood account is an account of the destruction, not simply of the earth, but of the inhabitants of the earth. It was as if, folks, God just wiped, and it was just like he erased the population of the world and all the animals. And he could have killed all the sea creatures for whatever reason he did not. Everything died in the flood. And in chapter 7 and verse number 24, right, the waters, the flood waters, are what covers the earth for 150 days. So 40 days of rain in 150 days of the earth being absolutely positively covered with water. The waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, we have the flood ending. God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. So we're 150 days in. About five months, we're just living on the ark. And I would just point out here, folks, that when the Old Testament, and actually when the Bible uses that word, remember, um, that, it, that it's really a very kind of pointed and narrow definition of remember. It doesn't mean that God had gotten so preoccupied with being deity that he forgot about Noah for five months. Okay? When the Old Testament in particular uses the word, and I think that it's, it's driving the, the use of the word like when James tells us to remember widows and visiting them, that, that it means God now begins to act positively on his behalf, which is what we see. God now begins to remediate the floodwaters. They lasted five months. Why didn't they last six months? And the answer to that is Genesis 8.1. Because now God begins to take action to recede the waters. The wind blows. The, the science that we know goes into effect. And the water begins to evaporate. Okay, Verse number 2. The fountains also the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of 150 days, the waters were abated. So an ongoing process of the rain stopping and the waters coming up from the upturned earth. And over the course of time, the waters lose their position of dominance. They, right, the, the, earth, the earth is an ocean for 150 days. Just nothing but an ocean for 150 days. And the water then returns to its, whatever it will be, its natural level. Verse number 14, in the second month, on the 7th and 20th day of the month, was the earth dried. 
So the flood comes to an end. In chapter 8, verse 15, through chapter 9, 17, God proclaims his intention to repopulate the earth through Noah and his descendants. All right, so to this point, God's intention has been to destroy the earth with the flood. And he follows through on that. He saves Noah. He brings the flood. He destroys everything that is living. And now God declares his intention to repopulate the earth through Noah. And so in verses 15 through 19, Noah and his family begin then to leave, to <clears throat> leave the ark. And in Genesis chapter 8 and verse number 20, Noah worships in gratitude. Noah makes an offering of worship. Verse number 20, Noah builded an ark unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living, everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So the, the world that we know, the seasons that we have, are the consequence simply of God's decree. Folks, we know that there's a, you know, we, we know there's a science to them. But the only reason there's a science to them is because there is a decree to them. God said, this is the way that it will be. <clears throat> so again, <clears throat> we have here, folks, kind of a foreshadowing of things that will be incorporated into the law. The law doesn't create these things. And it's really important for us to understand that. It's not like everybody's just kind of doing their own thing religiously and then God comes along and goes, you know what we need here? We need a law. God had been instructing people about right worship from the very beginning. And when he gets to his covenant people, he takes that right concept of worship and turns it into a series of laws. But it's not the creation of right worship. It is the regulation of right worship. So we have the burnt offerings. All of those, not all, but from all of the clean animals that Noah had brought. And again, how did he know what was clean and unclean? We're a long way from Leviticus 11, but he's obviously being instructed, and he takes of those and he offers those in sacrifice to the Lord. <clears throat> and in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, God blesses Noah and his sons. Again, folks, <clears throat> this kind of blessing is not you know, the way that we would say God bless you to somebody when they sneeze. Whether it be the blessing or the cursing. And, and these are things that God has some people in the Bible do. Noah will do it. Um, <clears throat> Jacob will do it. 
They will make these kind of proclamations. The, the, the point really that is being made is that God has the power to either bless or curse, that he acts deliberately and he will act deliberately on good, <clears throat> for good. Verse number one, God blessed Noah and his sons and sent unto him, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it. At the hand of every man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man, and you be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. So the blessing of God upon Noah is the determination that they will repopulate the earth. And they are again given authority over the animal kingdom. What we have here, folks, is really a reiteration of the creation account to given to Adam and Eve. And what I mean, <clears throat> if I can jump ahead of myself a little bit, one of the spiritual purposes of the flood account. Right? What is the story about? The story is about God's determination to preserve humanity for his purposes. God created Adam and Eve for a purpose. And that purpose to be that they would multiply and extend God's rule over the earth, earth creation in his name so that the... Right? This is... <clears throat> now I'm just kind of getting way, way ahead of myself. Folks. This is... This is one of the things, folk, one of the reasons that I would argue it is imperative to understand there being a literal kingdom. There isn't a literal kingdom. When will the purpose of God be fulfilled? How will the purposes of God ever be completely brought to completion if there is never a time when God reigns from sea to sea, so that the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord, the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This has been the plan from Eden. And so Adam, or so Noah and his wife and his sons and his daughters-in-law are to repopulate the earth and to fill it as Adam and Eve were to. They are to wield dominion over the animal kingdom as Adam and Eve were to do. They are to dominate and to subjugate the earth. And if you recall, folks, I mentioned this when we talked about the creation. This is a very forceful word. And, and I, I just, I want to just, when God says have dominion, I, I just want to be very careful. This would be the kind of dominion, <clears throat> right? If somebody wrestled you to the ground and put their arm across your throat, and just had you at their mercy, that kind of dominion. So that man reigns on earth. 
He is the undisputed master of the planet. That is God's intention. Which again, the world in which we live, in which we elevate the preservation of the earth above every other consideration, is just a reflection of how distorted humanity has become. Because the earth was given to us to dominate, to have our way with, to use for our best purposes. That's the point of the whole planet. And in verse number three, folks, they are given permission now. This is a distinction from the Garden of Eden. Because, of course, when Adam and Eve were created, there was no sin and there was no death. And so none of the animals were going to be given for food. And so Adam and Eve were vegetarians. But now, in verse number 3, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Right? I mean, there's, just, there's nothing that could be more clear than that verse, folks. Noah and his family had God's divine sanction to eat anything that moved. There were no restrictions. There's only one restriction, and that's found in verse number 4. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. So any animal, which by the, to, to what, and now, uh, were there pigs on the ark? I don't know, we could fight about that forever, couldn't we? But if there were pigs on the ark, Adam and Eve could eat them. And if there were catfish in the ocean, which are fish without scales, or Noah and his family could eat them. They could eat anything that moved. They could eat anything that was alive. But they could not eat blood. We are back to that world, folks. It was the law that regulated what living forms you could eat. And we're not under the law. We're back to the world of Genesis 9, 3, and 4. And we're under the same restriction We're not allowed to eat blood, Acts 15. But otherwise, we're allowed to eat anything. And in verses 5 and 6, and I just want to put a little bit different spin on it. Those of you that, and we have used, and I really love and appreciate, the uh, Becca curriculum, from almost the beginning days of your education in the Abeka curriculum, you have been taught that Genesis 9-6 is the foundation of civil authority, capital punishment. And there's a dimension of truth to that. But what is really happening, folks, in verses 5 and 6 is that man is being restrained from killing at will. That that any implementation of death is going to be met with judgment. You just can't go around killing people. And I don't know this, can't prove it, but I wonder if that wasn't part of what was going on 
in Genesis 6, when the earth was filled with violence. And I wonder if that isn't flowing out of the mentality of Lamech, a man who declares his commitment to vengeance. So I don't know, but a corrupted, violent world looks like something. And the best that we can see, it looks like a world filled with criminals, both white-collar and armed. So God proclaims his intention in this passage, right? God proclaimed his intention to destroy the earth, and destroy the earth he did. And now God proclaims his intention to preserve the earth, and preserve the earth he did. And here we are, and as long as there is an earth, he says, verse number 22, while earth remaineth seed time and harvest, which, which makes more precious revelation, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Then finally in Genesis 9, 8 through 17, God establishes his covenant with Noah and all life on the earth. How do I know? In other words, folks, how do we know that Genesis 8, 22 is true? How do we know that? What assurance do we have that God is going to keep his word? And I mean, I think we, we would understand this as believers if the unbelieving world doesn't understand this, right? Who could restrain him if he changed his mind? What if we, what if we just all banded together to go fight against him? Would that, would that do it? And of course, we know that the answer to that is no. But God gives in verses 8 through 17 a visible evidence that he is not going to destroy the earth. And we call this, of course, the covenant, the Noahic covenant. It is the first known Bible covenant. And I'm going to put it that way because if we were covenant in our theology, we would be arguing all of this on the basis of pre-existing covenants. But they're not mentioned in Scripture. People find implications for them. But we're never told about any of those covenants directly. But here is the first clear covenant. And from this point forward, God deals with people through covenants, through his commitment to obligate himself in certain ways. So, verse number 8, God spake to Noah and his son, saying, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you, with your seed after you, with every living thing that is with you, with the fowl, the cattle of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. And God said this is the token. So there's the covenant in verses 9 through 11. Here is the token or the sign of the covenant, which I swear make between me and you and every living creature which is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you, 
and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And uh, verse number 17, God said unto Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. And so we can just stop right there. So we we have the rainbow which is supposed to serve as a consolation and a comfort to us every time we see it, that God has promised that he will not destroy the earth with a flood. And right, this, is, this is something that we enjoy. Folks, rainbows are not just beautiful things when the sun shines after the rain falls. They are reminders of God's covenant that we are safe from being destroyed by the flood. <clears throat> So quickly then, right? Again, there's the, the story moves along. There are questions that we could ask again. You know, were there other extended members of Noah's family? How many people did Noah actually know die in the flood? Was Noah a full-time evangelist who built an ark? Or was he a, you know, I mean, and, and there are people who, and, and I couldn't fight with them. There are people who argue that angels helped build the ark, that it was too massive even for four men, or maybe, he I mean, we just don't know those kinds of things. What are the dominant theological ideas of the flood? I would suggest to you that there are two. Turn, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 2. The first theological principle I would develop Well, actually, both of them are found in the text. Number one is God's absolute right and ability to judge sin. God's absolute right and ability to judge sin. He is the judge. The world was corrupt in his eyes. And again, I mean, we, you know, here we are living in the 21st century and every Every generation of Christians has found enough evidence for the sinfulness of their world. The sinfulness of our world exists in abundance. Everybody believes that the world is imperfect, but it is in the power of men to make it better. And we don't all agree on what would have to happen to make it better, but we all agree that men could make it better. I would just point out to you that God doesn't seem to share that sentiment, that we don't make things better, we make things worse. And he gets to be the judge. And not only does he get to be the judge, but he has the ability to deal with sin as he wishes. He destroyed the entire of the world. This is, folks, you know, let me just beg you not, not to fall apart over scientific debates about these kinds of things. Because God is not writing a science textbook and he's not writing a book in light of evolutionary Darwinian theory. God is writing a book in which we read it and we go, you know what? If God wants to destroy the whole kit and caboodle, he can do it. Not try to figure out how he doesn't mean what he says and there's just localized pockets of people that were drowned. God can destroy 
everybody. And a con- in correlation with that, folks, and, and we see this in the life and ministry of Jesus, he is far more interested in consecrated followers than in large assemblies of rebels or unconsecrated followers. Only Noah. And because of God's grace, Noah was different. And his difference was that he was righteous in an unrighteous world. Secondly, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 4. This is also developed in the text of Genesis, but stated clearly in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot. And the word just doesn't mean only Lot, it means righteous Lot. Vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Right? So so here, see the the corollaries? God didn't spare angels that sinned. Cast them down to hell. God destroyed the entire world except for Noah. God destroyed all of Sodom and Gomorrah except for Lot. Conclusion? God knows how to spare people as well as destroy them. That's the point Peter makes. Verse number 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So God knows how to destroy and God knows how to deliver. That's That's the story of the flood. In his righteousness, in his hatred of sin, He has the right and the ability to judge sin. So he has the power to destroy. And then he spares Noah and Lot. And Lot, right, even in this text, Lot doesn't come across as a paragon of virtue, does he? Lot is a man who is up to his elbows in the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet he is spared. And I don't mean that he was, right? The the text doesn't suggest that he was engaging in that activity, but that in his constant exposure to it, in the seeing and the hearing, he was up to his elbows in the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. God knows how to deliver people as well. So we we are doubly safe, folks. We are doubly safe. God knows how to destroy the world and God knows how to, how to deliver his people. All right, I'm going to stop there and we will be back at 11 o'clock.